When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I grew up middle class in a house my parents had bought. And the fact that I would someday own a house, it was the sort of thing that I just assumed would someday happen. Like, I'd get my driver's license, and I'd get a job, and then someday I'd own a house. There are so many reasons why that housing dream has become an impossibility, particularly for millennials and younger. It's the shrinking middle class, it's monumental student loan debt, it's the lack of new housing. It's, well, a lot. And the end result is that homeownership has become an unattainable dream unless you have some sort of familial wealth particularly if you live in any of the hundreds of metro areas across the country with out-of-control housing markets. But there is a different way. It requires a lot of work and thoughtfulness, and also, in many cases, the willingness or ability to move to a place that is very much not an urban area. Enter Cheap Old Houses. Maybe you've seen the Instagram account or followed it in a revenge bedtime procrastination blur. There's a three-bedroom, two-bath in Sharon, Pennsylvania for $7,500, or an old quirky hotel in Thayer, Missouri for $25,000, or this adorable yellow house in Joplin, Missouri with a front porch and pocket doors for $50,000. Like, who has seen those numbers next to a house in any recent past? Cheap Old Houses is precisely what it sounds like. The account highlights homes that need some TLC and where the price tag isn't usually the problem. It's the money and the sweat equity that you'll have to put into restoring it. These houses are often in places where flipping isn't or shouldn't be the goal. They're rural or in towns where, for various reasons, the population has declined significantly over the past 50 to 100 years. And it's easy to fall in love with these houses through, you know, the screen on Instagram. There's 100-year-old staircases, the beautiful built-ins, the multiple wood-burning fireplaces. But there's a responsibility, too, with becoming a steward of history. You change the house, but if you talk to anyone who's gone through the process of buying these homes, it's clear that the house, it changes you. And that's what this episode is all about. This is Townsizing, a podcast from HGTV all about small-town living. And I'm your host, Anne Helen Peterson. 
In the first half, we'll hear from the creators and founders of Cheap Old Houses, which is not just an Instagram account, but also newsletters and an HGTV show. What made them so captivated with these homes and towns? Then later, we'll hear from someone who actually bought a cheap old house. We'll hear about the highs and lows of restoring an older house. And spoiler, that part is not cheap. First up, Ethan and Elizabeth Finkelstein. I consume a ton of cheap old houses content. It's like one of my favorite scrolling activities, not only to look at the houses, but also to read the comments on the houses on Instagram. And I've watched the show and I want to know, especially for our listeners, how did this all start? Like, how did you start doing this? Oh my gosh. It was just a magical coming together of so many forces of a background in historic preservation, a love of old houses growing up in them, both of us, I grew up in an old house, a cheap old house that my parents restored. Ethan, uh, his mother was raised on a 200 acre farmhouse in New Hampshire from the 1700s. And he has wow. very beautiful memories of childhood with his cousins running around those meadows and fields. Yeah. Um, and really, you know, the merging of that with the idea that in this country, no one can afford houses. It was sort of the the convergence of those things, realizing that people want things with character that make them feel a sense of groundedness, um, houses that are imperfect and beautiful in that. Also with the idea that these houses are accessible, attainable, finally, right? Like, yeah. oh my gosh, I could actually own a house. I think we're all feeling that so much now. <laughs> it's like, to me, a cul-de-sac of McMansions is like just emblematic of that feeling of like, oh, well, we, there's like this dream that's also really hollow. And the, the contrast would be something like what you're doing with cheap old houses, which is like, oh, here are these beautiful houses filled with character that are accessible to people in a different way. And there's actual, there's value inside of the house. Oh my gosh, I feel like a cul-de-sac of McMansions. It's like my soul-sucking worst nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned this sort of the dream. And I think that we we say so much, we're like trying to really redefine what the American dream is. I mean, you're right. When we were growing up, it was like, you get a car, you get a big house, you get everything and all of you go to you go to college and all of this revolves around the idea of debt. Ethan brought up this great point that like I think what's gotten lost in all of the shuffle of this absolutely out of control real estate market is is the starter home. Like the idea of a starter home yeah, yeah, doesn't exist sure. anymore. I mean, housing is so expensive for everybody. So the idea that you can have something and your closing costs would be very low and you could be mm-hmm. patient and you could work on your kitchen over the course of 12 years and that's just fine. Um, yeah. You know, that's really the kind of dream that we're, that we're pushing. And I think that there's such comfort in that for me. I started Cheap Old Houses because I love pink bathrooms. I love, you know, art deco yeah. things. Like it's crazy how, <laughs> and I, I feel like that's when you know something has legs. When, yes, there is a way to latch on to the Cheap Old Houses bandwagon if you love, you know, lavender tile and you love, you know, cool linoleum from the 20s and you love time capsule houses and you're a Greek revival nerd, whatever. And there's all that and that's so great. But there's also this like very real complex side of it that is speaking to a larger sort of system of values that we've been sold in this country. It's interesting because cheap old houses started doing well long before COVID, you know, when, when things were fine and the economy was fine and people could afford things. And then suddenly COVID happened and it then even did better, but it it sustains no matter what the economy is, because it's always Mm -hmm. a really good idea to try to live beneath your means, no matter what the 
sort of economy is. That's a good transition, actually, to, to asking what makes a cheap old house. Like, by your definition, how does it get featured? It's really the perfect storm of things for me. I would say original things. I, I think mm. there's nothing sadder than seeing a house that's, you know, that has this beautiful Victorian facade and you open it up and it's like grayish and has those same <laughs> like grayish floors and you're like, oh, it's clearly been flipped. I would yeah. rather see something in a decrepit state of deferred maintenance, but still be there than mm-hmm. something that's like fresh and clean and totally gutted and uninteresting anymore. Clearly there's a price point and the price point is under... <laughs> oh yeah, there's that. A <laughs> hundred what is it? You, you, you get, it's $120,000 on the feed. It is. I mean, generally most everything we post is under a hundred. Occasionally yeah. if I see a house that's so good that goes up to 120, which I think is, you know, thinking about the idea of inflation and how we started this feed... In 2016, was it? 120 is kind of like the new 100. I don't know. It's just kind of shifted. So, you know, we do that. And then we also post houses that are called Save This House. That's mm-hmm. that are like, and those are some people's favorites that are just really amazing fixer uppers, but that are in places that would never warrant a price tag of under $100,000. Um, yeah. A lot of houses on the West Coast are this way in our more sort of expensive areas in the country. But that, I, but I still think these houses are very, very worthy of being shown to people who would appreciate them. And we do and have some them. newsletters that change the price point. You know, we have cheap-ish mm. old houses. We have cheap old farmhouses. We have... Cheap old houses abroad. Cheap houses abroad. Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of the, the cheap old houses are places that are smaller towns or places that used to be bigger towns and are now, population-wise, smaller towns. So I think of, like, near where I used to live in Montana, the, the city of Butte, which used to be, like, the richest city in the West, right? Incredible architecture, incredible houses, but also because of the downturn in mining, like the population just really plummeted over the course of the 20th century, right? It's a small town that has gorgeous architecture that you would not expect to find in a town named Butte. So what are the role of these houses in some of these smaller areas, small towns and metropolises? Oh my gosh, these houses are so critical. I mean, these houses are are these towns wearing their proud histories on their sleeves. I think there is nothing sadder to me than strip mall America. When you drive in a place Mm -hmm. has just been stripped of anything that has the potential to really bring its people together around a common shared history and understanding of sense of place. And I think the built fabric is so unbelievably critical to that. I don't mean to sort of be naive in this statement because obviously a lot goes into creating healthy towns and cities. But I think that a lot of the places that people would pay a fortune to live now are that way because at one point people went in and saw the bones and revived the historical architecture. So it does play a significant role in making places that obviously people want to live in because they're paying a ton to live there. I think that through all these examples, we can see that clearly there's a draw to these kinds of buildings. And we have a lot of towns in our country that quite frankly cannot get people to move to them. I mean, gentrification is a concern in a lot of places in this country. Towns around where we live, that's not an issue. The buildings are literally vacant and abandoned. And no matter what you do, you try to open a coffee shop in that downtown, you're not going to survive. No one will come to it. So yeah. And and if historical architecture is a draw for people, we need to look into using it more to get people interested in some of these places. It might be that it's all that some of these towns have right now in terms of attracting 
some sort of investment to help them through yeah. and help the small business. And I think that's like a real tension, right? Because some of the people who have lived there for a really long time, they're still mourning the loss of whatever that industry was, right? Whether it's timber or mining or whatever. So what is the future? How do you think about like, how do we get people who are working remotely to work here and sustain this town so that it doesn't disappear altogether? What are the places that pop up a lot that like if you see a listing in this town, you're like, oh, I bet this is going to be interesting or in this area. The Midwest is really big for this in rural yeah. parts of Maine, Western New York. I guess things we would sort of traditionally consider like the Rust Belt area around Pittsburgh. Yeah. West Virginia. West Virginia. West Virginia. <laughs> you know, I places. Mean, Georgia and South, there's South Carolina and. Yep. There is a direct connection between former industrial cities and cheap old houses because, yeah, as our economy moved away from that and those cities emptied out, we have this incredible housing stock that's just still there. And so that's where you find a lot of them. I So I live on an island off the coast of Washington State, and I live in one of the oldest houses on the island, which most of these houses were originally just fishing shacks. Like people would come over from the mainland and they were not winterized and no mechanical plumbing, all that sort of thing. But oldest house on the island is 1904 was when my house was built, right? And so, like, the contrast to seeing how old houses are on the East Coast, like, the first time I went to the East Coast, I remember just, like, driving around in some town in Maine, and I was like, how? This is just a normal town. Like, everything is so old. And part of it, too, like, my town that I grew up in in Idaho, it was, like, a boom town, and everything was made with, like, cheap, shitty wood and, like, just burned over and over and over again. So, yeah, it's just, it's a contrast. Totally. And so when people say, can you post more houses on the West Coast? In a way, the purpose of our feed is not to find the sort of diamond in the rough, super cheap listing in a really expensive area. Right. The point of our feed, in a way, and this wasn't my our intention to begin with, but one of the things I love about our feed is that it opens people's minds to towns and cities that you we had never heard of <laughs> before, yeah. but they're like superheroes of cheap old houses. Um, yeah. And it makes you think about like, you know, maybe, you know, when we lived in Brooklyn, believe me, Brooklyn was the center of the universe and there are <laughs> other places yeah. besides Brooklyn to live. Right. Um, and, and it's just kind of funny. I just way. think when you take the location, location, location out of the real estate search, yeah. it opens up a completely different world of possibilities of what you can and can't have. Which, like, let's be honest, COVID did for so many people. Right. It just, like, yep. took location out of it. Like, you suddenly, you know, if you're working remotely, what can I do? Well, and we were working remotely before the pandemic, and we were dying to really exercise our being able to be anywhere. And, mm -hmm. you know, but we felt this attachment to the city, and, and then finally COVID hit, and we were like, okay, chains are off. Let's let's do this. Yeah, and, like, not even have to be, in like, a train ride into it, like a quick train ride into it and sort of thing. I mean, technology is as such, also in rural communities, way more than it ever was. I mean, there are communities totally. around here that still don't have internet in homes in our area that don't have internet, which is mind-boggling to me. And actually, that's a big thing when you're searching for a cheap old house in a very rural place check your internet if that's a yes. requirement yes. Um, for you um, yes. because for me it was more important than water let's say you know and it was yeah. when we bought our cheap old farmhouse which we're restoring right now Ethan like day one like we didn't have any, I mean this thing is a soup to nuts fixer upper but Ethan was like we will have internet immediately <laughs> you know I look at the Instagram page and I look at the comments and oftentimes people's first reaction is like what's the hitch when people say what's the hitch 
I'm like, you guys, this feed is not called expensive houses in overpriced locations. <laughs> like this is cheap old houses. There's no such thing as a free lunch. The houses are yeah. all going to have some reason why they're cheap. I mean, I assume that's a given. So I'm always a little bit like, why did you even ask that question? I mean, the idea of these houses is that they either require work or they mm-hmm. are far away from typical jobs. You know, there's a lot of reasons why they're cheap and that's not right. for me to judge. I'm just kind of putting them out there. So yeah, there's going to be some sort of hitch in some way. And it's just like a matter of like, pick your poison, you know? And we often say there's a reason why we have so many creatives that follow us. Like very, very well-known celebrities, artists, writers, poets, actors, actresses following us. This is not about the money for them. They don't need a cheap house, but they love the dream of that. I'm sure these are people who are deeply overworked, probably started doing what they did because they loved the art, but are now stuck in the business of it and emailing all day and in customer service and having to post on social media 14 times a day and like all these things that are just like, I want to get back to using my hands and doing art. And these houses are art for them. Like I see that comment as like an engineer or someone who, and I don't mean to blame engineers. (laughs) We love engineers. We rely on them for everything. (laughs) We rely on them. Um, But someone who sees, you know, very black and white, like a wall is a wall. The numbers. I mean, I've talked to like people who are in different professions that are like, well, wouldn't it be cheaper to build a new house? And it's just like, yeah, but this house is the oldest house in the, like this house from the 1700s. Like, Yes, it would be, but they would also be boring as all heck to live in that house. Right. Um, Yeah, obviously, like we're not picking the easy path here. Easy (laughs) is not the goal here. So yeah, the hitch is that for whatever reason, it's not going to be easy. But I think like we're all, I think this is exactly the dream. I mean, we're all sick. I don't want to sit in my house and yell to Alexa to turn my light on and not have to do anything and just like walk away. You know, like that's boring. I mean, I feel like our people want to express themselves through their homes and the work is the fun part. I think it's human nature. There's a lot of things that are hard. Running a marathon is hard and people get celebrated. Having, I often can, I often relate this to having kids because totally nobody's going to argue with you for saying you want children, but like people are going to tell you for wanting a house. That's a lot of work. Kids are a lot of work. Kids are expensive. Kids will make you cry. Like all the things, right? But we do it because we realize that there's immense value in it regardless. And it's the same with a cheap old house. For yourself or for other people who have bought some of the cheap old houses, like what is a difficulty that is often unappreciated or unanticipated? Like what's the, the unsexy thing that people don't think about? I would say with all that's out there right now, with these instant transformations on TV, on Instagram, everywhere, I think there's a frustration in the feeling like, oh my gosh, everyone is going so much faster than me. I see a lot of sort of like self-help speeches, like therapeutic, vulnerable speeches from old house owners talking about how they're coming to terms with like letting themselves not have done any house projects this week and it's okay. Yeah, I think that they buy this house And it changes them deeply. I mean, when we bought our farmhouse, it became our life purpose. It became literally like our everything, all of our money, all of our time, all of our thoughts go into this. And when you don't have a moment, you have to focus on your children that week or you you have something come up and you can't get stuff done. There's sort of like a guilt about that. There's a lot of comparison syndrome because like it's easy (laughs) to open up Instagram and be like, oh, 
everyone else is is doing it faster than me. I think dealing yeah. with contractors right now, because mm. I believe the trades are underrepresented, there's not enough people in them, and how to work with them, I think, is a big one. I think financial um, components of owning a cheap old house are definitely not sexy and not something that everyone wants to talk about. I think that's a big one. But I think at the end of the day, when you're under leveraged and you work slow um, and you work with your contractors in their time, you're still have a better investment because you aren't in such crazy debt and you're not running on this crazy hamster wheel. Yeah. Because so many people moved during COVID right now, contractors are just in such high demand and it's definitely hard to pin them down. The sort of famous line in business is how costly do you want? How fast do you want it? And what quality do you want? You can only Mm -hmm. pick two of the three things. Oh my gosh. That's so (laughs) my belief, I guess, on this school of thought is I want quality and it for to be cheap and I'm willing to wait time for, for that to, you know, and, I, and but I can't have it quick. You can't have all three. It's impossible, supposedly. Yeah. But like everything has to be amazing and beautiful and quick and like shouldn't cost a lot of money, right? We should always be trying to get a better deal on everything. And it's just not realistic. And so if you can change your understanding and be patient in that way, I do think it opens up so many possibilities in terms of home ownership just broadly. My last question is just generally, what is your favorite thing about living in a small town? That's hard. I think for me, there's only single roads and there's a chance to just generally slow down. I mean, we still live very chaotic, crazy lives through our work and through all the things, but it allows this other part of us, the normal part, the daily part, the stuff that should be easy to just kind of relax a little bit more and just kind of be at ease. I don't know why we didn't move here sooner. (laughs) In act two of this episode, we hear from someone who went to one of those towns the Finkelsteins talked about. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wheeling, West Virginia is a city built to be big. It peaked at around 110,000 people in the 1920s. But like a lot of post-industrial cities, it also saw a mass exodus. Now, it's pretty much a small town, hovering around 30,000 people. There's all these gorgeous houses, once owned by steel magnates and nail factory owners. They're Victorian houses with these great stained glass windows, ornate staircases, bay windows, all over the place. Our guest Betsy Sweeney actually has one of these houses. It was featured on the Cheap Old Houses Instagram. She's 29 years old and works in historic preservation. I'll let her take it from here. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I went to school in Missouri, spent some time at some other places, was living in Virginia, working in a museum. And when I kind of recognized that I wanted to take my architectural history and historic preservation background and kind of shift lanes a little bit and get out of the museum and out of the academic world and into more of a community environment... I just started doing basically a national search. You know, in my field of work, it's not too common to pick based on geography. You kind of go where the jobs are. And so I didn't have any regional or geographic allegiance anywhere. I was just casting my net wide to try to find a job and a location that felt good to me. And Wheeling, West Virginia came across my computer and I called him up. And next thing you know, I'm interviewing. And next thing you know, I'm moving. So you moved there first. Why were they looking for someone with your background? Like, why was it a good fit? Yeah, so Wheeling is a national heritage area. And I tell people, think of national heritage areas the way you think of national parks. But instead of being designated because of natural beauty, mountains, waterfalls, things like that, they are designated based upon the area's contribution to American history. And so in the case of Wheeling, the Wheeling National Heritage Area is the city limits of Wheeling, And we were recognized, um, I think, 28 years ago because of our contribution to the history of statehood, innovation, transportation, things like that. And so Wheeling Heritage is the operating organization for the National Heritage Area. And when I kind of got linked up with them, they were looking for someone to manage their historic preservation activities and kind of overhaul their historic and heritage interpretation, um, Mm. which was exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of stay in the formal cultural institution world while still being super connected to a community, which is a pretty tall order when job searching. And so it it ended up being a great professional fit. And then I came to the town and I 
toured around and I saw the architecture and the small businesses that were popping up. It was very clearly a town that was on the brink of revitalization. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the space I wanted to work in. So it was pretty much love at first sight. I love that. So a lot of the houses that are on cheap old houses, a lot of them are in these kind of post-industrial places in the East and in Midwest in particular. And Wheeling is one of those places. And so what was Wheeling known for specifically? Yeah. So um, Wheeling is unique. And this is kind of the reason for the um, National Heritage Area designation in that they were kind of on the cusp of many different mm. eras of industrialization. So kind of early settlement pre-railroad, the National Road came through Wheeling. And so people were on wagons and Wheeling was one of those gateways to the West. And then as we get a little deeper into history, we sit right on the Ohio River. And so steamboat travel and river travel became incredibly significant in this region because you could go up to Pittsburgh and ship things down to Wheeling and go on the Ohio River and eventually hit the Mississippi and eventually out to the port of New Orleans. So we were a river town. And then the railroad came through, which enhanced industrialization. And we had pretty much all of the big kind of factories, steel, glass, pottery, probably most famous and for the longest time We had the LaBelle Ironworks, which was the largest manufacturer of nails in the world at one point. Wow. So describe the community now. You said that it was, you know, on the cusp of revitalization. Just give us a sense of it. Wheeling is interesting because it straddles the benefits and the challenges of both West Virginia as a state, but it doesn't feel like the rest of the state and Mm. the Northeast and Midwest post-industrial communities, but it doesn't feel exactly like those either. And so Mm. Wheeling peaked in population in the 1920s, and that was nearly three times what it is today. So our population hovers right around 30,000 now. In the 1920s, it was over 100,000. And so our building stock and our urban sprawl was created to accommodate a population much, much larger than what we have today. Mm -hmm. And that you know, of course, breeds issues of vacancy, abandonment, dilapidation, all of those things. On the bright side, Wheeling has these institutions, resources, and cultural amenities that were built for a much larger city. And so we still maintain a beautiful theater. We have a symphony. We have several art institutions. We have all of these cultural amenities and larger facilities that are something you would expect in a big city. So you've lived in mostly bigger cities like Pittsburgh and D.C. metro area. What was it like for you to move to Wheeling in your (laughs) mid-20s? This is going to sound really short-sighted, but I didn't even think about what the community would (laughs) like feel like coming from a certain age or a certain background or whatever. I just knew the kind of work I wanted to do, and I knew that this community had all the building blocks, and so it was going to be fine. I moved here, and all of my expectations were exceeded. I met a group of people that are still my closest friends within weeks of moving here. My best friend in town is literally five houses down the street from me. Like, it is like a Hallmark movie. (laughs) Um, In terms of meeting people and having a social life, it was great because there's enough of us here that it doesn't have that super small town, like everyone's in your business thing, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it is small enough that you recognize people. And if you're kind of working 
in the same space or you have the sort of same civic commitment as others, you see each other and you naturally have something in common. And so it's really easy to build relationships. So I want to hear about your house. You moved first and then the house came along. How did you find the house? What was it like? There's multiple layers to Instagram in being part of this story. So (laughs) there is this weird, almost supernatural part of it where when I was in Virginia, sitting on my couch, having just interviewed for this position in Wheeling, I was kind of scrolling on Instagram, looking at the geotags of like downtown Wheeling, East Wheeling Historic District, whatever, just creeping. And I remember seeing a detail shot of a fireplace that was really beautiful tile and it had like some dogs running across it and it stood out in my mind. And I thought to myself, this seems like the kind of community where I might actually be able to afford something like that one day. Like that could be in my house and not just something I dream about. So keep that story in the back of your mind. Fast forward to about a year into living here, I started looking around in earnest and my, what is now my house, I saw it. The neighbor overheard me telling my friend I thought it was beautiful. She was like, oh, I'll get you in touch with the owner. It's vacant. I bet he'd sell it to you. So that snowballed. Little did I know that they were preparing to put the house on the market at that exact same time. So they submitted it to cheap old houses because they were also preservationists. And so all these things are kind of happening in the background and they're lining up. And then and they were working in Louisiana on a historic plantation in like the museum sector. So they came up for the holidays, Thanksgiving weekend. They (laughs) meet me in the front porch, swing open the front door, and under the staircase is the dog fireplace (laughs) that I had seen online. my gosh. A year ago, yeah. And so it was a done deal after that. (laughs) When did you get a move in? So I purchased the house at the end of May 2020, and I moved in December 1st, 21. So it was about... 18 months of construction, um, which in retrospect is good. It was fast. Uh, I was, I initially had a much tighter timeline planned and then the house kind of went viral and all these other things happened and that slowed me down a little. Yeah. You know, one of the things I like about your account and also just about, I think some of what the Finkelsteins like really underline is that there's a real patience in doing this work. And there's something worthwhile in cultivating it. Like, what was something that took a lot of patience for you? Truthfully, all of it. But the probably quintessential example would be the repointing of the house. There is no way to speed it up. Every single joint between every single brick had to be redone. And that, you know, two and a half stories, every single one, scrape it out, wet it down, fill it back in, clean it up inch by inch, foot by foot, there was just, there's no way around it. And so there were times where it was really frustrating to work for four or five hours and feel like you got six square feet done. But there was also something really medicinal about it. Like it Mm -hmm. really felt like every little drop of mortar that I put into that house was healing it. And you could see it was getting stronger and it was coming back to life because she was on the brink. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you decide what stuff you pay a professional to do and what stuff you learn how to do yourself? So I think it's different for everyone. I have some restoration background. So there were things that I knew how to do. And 
That was kind of one category. If I knew I could do it, I would try to do it. And then urgency is the other thing. Like I, again, I am not the live on love person. I harp on people, figure out what your time is worth, figure out how much of it you have, and then compare that against the professional. And Mm -hmm. it might come out that it's better to do it yourself. It might come out it's better to pay someone. In the case of that early structural masonry and the gutter systems, every single day that my house took on water, it was in jeopardy. And so I could have gotten it done in a year, but the professionals finished it in like three weeks. And that's time you can't buy back. So I hired out the things that were urgent. I hire out systems. Like I tell everyone, there's a reason I'm a historian. (laughs) My architectural knowledge stops at like technology. And so plumbing, electrical, HVAC, I don't really mess with. Your house renovation is only going to be as fun as you make it. So find the things you enjoy. Yeah, since you do, like, you have a very popular Instagram account, what are the questions that people send you a lot? I would say they're different kinds of questions. So I have seen a ton of real people, probably 30 to 50 on average, that actually moved to Wheeling. Like they saw the town, they're looking to relocate. And so I do a lot of one-on-one consulting with those people because if they're serious and they want to come here, like that's my ultimate goal. So, and then there are a lot of younger women in particular that are interested in the field and didn't have the language to really identify what it is that I do until they saw Mm, it. And that I really love. So I always enjoy talking with them. And those are, I've had people as young as like 12 all the way up to, you know, second careers in their thirties. And then you do see some older folks that are just, they just love old buildings and they have found Mm -hmm. this whole new wave of information on social media and they just love to interact. And so it really runs the gamut. What is one of your favorite parts of your house now? I grew up in a ranch style house. I'm an only child. I never lived in a big house. I rented little houses. I had a little loft apartment. And so it has been really fun to have a big house. Like (laughs) I love having a formal dining room. I love having a guest room and a laundry room and like all these different rooms. (laughs) Yep. It's so funny because it's similar to like, I think what some people want when they move to the suburbs to a house that they don't really necessarily love, but they love the space. So you have like the richness of the house and its design and it's huge and it's all yours. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I tell people we are not actually reinventing the wheel. This house was built in the 1890s for exactly that. Someone made some money. They were able to move out of their apartment. They wanted to have a family They wanted to be within walking distance. They wanted certain amenities, but they needed these other things. And so they built this house. But they did it before cars and when we still cared about our neighbors. And that's the difference. And I think going back to that way of living might actually help us all. Okay, so what is your advice, just kind of overarching advice about how to approach this moving forward? I would say so many of the properties that are featured on cheap old houses are in these towns and small cities. And a lot of times, I would say most times, there is a nonprofit, a Main Street organization, a historical society. There are people in that community that are trying so hard to make it a vibrant, amazing place. And so the quicker you can get into contact with those people, it's going to give you the tech 
technical information you need. And it's also going to help you understand if that's the community you actually want to live in and join. Because you're not buying a house in isolation. You're buying a house in a neighborhood, in a community. In our next episode, we'll be going north to the Arctic Circle. If you thought I live in a remote place that is nothing compared to our next guest, Kavahine Danner. She's an Inupiaq Hawaiian artist living in the village Utkiavik, the northernmost town in the United States. She will speak about what it's like living in rural Alaska and the beauty and challenges that come with it. Townsizing is produced by Neon Hum Media for HDTV. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other folks find the show. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, and if you see me online or even in real life, be sure to give me that small town wave. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.